And I want to begin today with a silly uh, story, and it'll probably offend half of you, but you just have to get over it. Uh, and it's entitled, How Many Churchgoers in Each Denomination Does It Take to Change a Light Bulb? How many churchgoers in each denomination does it take to change a light bulb? I told you it was silly. Charismatics. Only one. Why? Their hands are already in the air. You with me? Now, the Pentecostals are more serious. It only takes one of them, too. No, it takes ten. One to change the bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. God bless my Pentecostal friends. Presbyterians, none. It's already predetermined when the light comes on and when it goes out. <laughs> Some of your Presbyterian backgrounds, you're offended already. Well, get over it. Roman Catholics, we have some Roman Catholics here. None, because they only use candles. You should know this. You should know, everybody knows this. Episcopalians, oh, I love this. It takes eight, one to call the electrician and nine to complain about how the old ways were always better. Sounds a little like Baptist too, doesn't it? I love this. This is my favorite. Mormons. It takes five. One man to change the light bulb and four wives to tell him how to do it better. <laughs> I told you that's my favorite. This is my next favorite. Unitarians. We choose not to make a statement. Now, Josh is going back to cough. He's not offended because he's not a Mormon and he's not a Unitarian. But he'll be back after a while, maybe or maybe not. I, I don't know. But the Unitarians say this about changing the light bulb. We choose not to make a statement either in favor of or against the need of a light bulb. However, if in your journey you have found that light bulbs work for you, that's fine. You are invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your personal relationship to a light bulb and present it next month at our annual Light Bulb Sunday service, including, and we will talk about, explore the number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, LED, LCD, long life, and tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. Oh, I love that. We talked this morning in Sunday school. Is Jesus the only way? Well, Methodists would say this about changing the light bulb. It's undetermined how many it takes. Whether your light is bright, dull, completely out, you're loved. You can be a light bulb, turnip bulb, or tulip bulb. Churchwide lighting service is planned for Sunday, October the 4th. Bring bulb of your choice in a covered dish. I love this. Lutherans. Takes none. Lutherans don't believe in change. <laughs> Sounds like some Baptists I know too. But here's my next favorite. Amish, what's a light bulb? <laughs> but then Baptist. Takes at least 15. One to change the light bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. Well, why do I read that silly story because while we like to joke about various denominations and their differences we know truly people from generation to generation are the same human nature really hasn't changed over the centuries 
People are people. They're really the same. And if there's one text that's going to show the truth of that, it is our text for today. So take your Bibles, open, buckle your seatbelts, and hang on as we study John 8, 1 through 12. John 8, 1 through 12, one of my favorite passages in all the Word of God. And I think after we finish, you'll say, it's one of my favorites, too. It's one of the most poignant scenes, one of the most powerful presentations of who Jesus is ever recorded anywhere. Now, before I even get started, you're going to say, Pastor, are you aware of textual difficulties with John 8? Actually, the textual difficulties began with John 7.53 going through 8.12. You say, what is a textual difficulty? It means that there are a very few places in your Bible that are recorded in your Bible, but they may not be in all of the manuscripts that we have used over the years to translate from Hebrew or Greek. There are minor places where there is a divergence from one manuscript to another. Now, Does that get you all worried? It shouldn't, because as I said, they're very few and they're minor. I am cognizant of the textual difficulties here. I am not a textual expert, though I'm somewhat versed in those areas. This section is in some of the later manuscripts. Do I believe this happened as it is recorded in your Bible? Yes, I do. Do I believe it is indicative of the character of Jesus? Yes, I do. Do I believe Jesus had this encounter with this woman and the crowd? Yes, I do. So I, in spite of the technical, textual difficulties, I do believe it is part of and should be a part of the Word of God. Well, let's look at it and see what it says. It says in chapter 8, verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Where is that? Well, it's just outside of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley. And by the way, he would stay there often with some friends named Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived over in Bethany, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. At dawn... He went to the temple complex again. He would have crossed, gone down uh, that valley, Kidron Valley, gone up to the temple complex. He went to the temple complex again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Verse 4, teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Well, by the way, the command was to stone men too. But they point out just the women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might find evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, verse 7, he stood up and said to them, the one who is without sin among you, he should be the first one to cast a stone at her. 
Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. What do you think he wrote? I don't know. When they persisted in questioning him, uh, excuse me, I I got lost there. Verse 9. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. Verse 10, and and when Jesus stood up, he, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. What a powerful, powerful passage. But I must tell you, my friends, this powerful passage portrays who we really are. It shows the world at work. It reveals uh, really the crowd we can become and sometimes have become. As we open up this passage, we see Jesus once again in the temple complex. And we see this as an opportunity for the crowd to do what they had been wanting to do for quite some time. What do I mean by that? Remember our study in John 7? Remember how the people began uh, in chapter 6, in the first part of chapter 7, really wanting him very much to give them food. And they followed him for the miracles and the food. But not long after that, they began to realize what he's asking of us is too hard. What he's pointing out for us to do is going to require change. And I don't want to change. And so they began to leave him and some turn against him. And there were those numerous opportunities where the the authorities sought to lay hold on him and to do away with him. And we studied even last week how they came back once again and said, well, we couldn't do it. No man's ever spoken like that man. We, we, We tried, but we just couldn't get him because we were afraid of the crowd. Well, now really the the crowd, by and large, has left Christ. I see some powerful things in this passage. And first of all, this morning, would you see with me this first major point? It simply says there are those who fail to live up to standards. There are those who fail to live up to our standards. This crowd wanted to do away with the woman. She was caught, they said, in the very act of adultery. It was a serious charge. In fact, in Judaism, it was one of the three most grave of sins. Not in the Bible, but in Jewish tradition, it was seen as such. So they were perfectly legally correct in what they said to Jesus by and large. As I've already pointed out to you, uh, the stoning... uh, was for men and women, not just for women. But she was caught in this horrendous, egregious sin. And they said, let's do away with her. Well, one of the problems with this particular group seems to be that they almost enjoyed bringing her before Christ. They had a kind of a moral watchdog kind of belief or seeming aura about them it seemed that they wanted to tear her apart 
Their authority was not based on sympathy but on twisted legalism. Sadly, as one writer said, this woman became to them not a person but a thing with no name, with no person, no feelings, and they drag her and use her to try to get at Christ. She failed to live up to their standards. Here's a failure. What do we do with failures? We point them out. We get rid of them. We've become experts, haven't we, at turning off and turning out people that we may think don't come up to our standards. Oh, my friends, we used to say, well, a person was a different color, they're not good. Oh, a person is from a wrong area, they're not good. Oh, a person has this kind of background, we don't want to have any part of them. My friends, we've become experts at turning off and tuning out people who may not be living according to what we think our standards are. And while today we may not get rid of people like they were seeking to get rid of her, we know how to get rid of them in our hearts, don't we? I don't like that person. I'm not going to have anything to do with that person. And so we are like that crowd. We, we can't stand people who are not to our level. Well, bless your heart, whatever your level is. The second group we see here is comprised of yet another group. Look at this next major point. Those who fail to come down to our level of maturity. I've already told you the crowd had begun to hate Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, the intelligentsia, the real rulers, they hated him. Hated him with a passion. And they wanted to do anything they could to get rid of him, to arrest him, to discredit him. Why? Why? Why did they hate Jesus so much? Why do people in the 21st century hate him so much? Because he was beyond them. And for them to become like him, they would have had to make massive systemic changes. And we're not going to do that. So let's get rid of the one that's embarrassing us. Let's get rid of the one who is uh, revealing who we really truly are. Let's get rid of him. He refused to come down to their level. So here was the opportune opportunity. It was the opportune time. Get rid of him. We got him. We got him. I mean, he, he cannot wiggle his way out of this one. Now, in numerous other places, in other Gospels, he had revealed an, an extremely unique wisdom to be able to answer questions. I mean, they, they tried to trip him in so many times, but they thought he can't get out of this one. First of all, if he agrees that we must stone her right now, Take her out of the city, get the rocks, and kill her. First of all, he will never be able to call himself a friend of sinner ever again. He will lose forever. I think it's uh, up on the screen. He will lose forever the name he had gained for love and mercy. After, if, he, if he agrees with us, nobody's going to listen to him anymore. He cannot say, I'm a friend of sinners. I can't do it. He can't do it. The second thing that would have happened is he would have brought himself into direct contradiction with the Roman authorities. You see, 
he would conflict with the Roman law, which stated that while they were in control, the Jews were not allowed to actually execute. I've told you this before, that when the Romans came in and conquered a people, they allowed limited self-government, whether it was in uh, uh, Spain, whether it was in what they call Germania, Britannia, or maybe Judea. Doesn't matter. They allowed the people to do what they usually did, with the exception you cannot uh, deal with capital crimes. Execution, we maintain that ability. You don't. So if Jesus had said, go and take her out and kill her right now, he would have put himself in contradiction to and in opposition to the Roman law. And that would have been problematic, certainly. But then next, if, what if he said, let her go? Let her go. Then what would he have been saying then? She didn't do anything wrong. Well, she did. He would have been giving a kind of a tacit approval to her sin. If Jesus said she should be pardoned, it would immediately be said he was directly contradicting Jewish law and saying it was okay to what she did. I mean, they had him in the perfect trap. I mean, it was the perfect scenario, the perfect storm. Here's a way to embarrass this man who's already embarrassed us. He's already placed a a mirror in front of us and we don't like what we see. Here we can get rid of this man. Now look with me again back at verses 5 through 8. Powerful. Three words. Powerful. Look at it. In verse 5. It says, in the law, Moses commanded that we stone such women. What do you say? By the way, that's an emphatic question. What do you say? You've got to answer us. And then they ask him again in the next verse, they ask him so they could trap him in order that he might, they might have evidence to accuse him. He stoops down and he starts writing. Well, I don't know what he wrote. I mean, people have thought about all kinds of things, what he wrote. What do you think he might have written? Maybe he was writing names. Maybe he was listing sin. Maybe he was saying, I know what's in your heart, and here's what you were thinking about yesterday. Oops. Here's what you were thinking about this morning. Here's how you treated your wife this morning. Whoops. Here's how you treated your dog, your whatever. I don't know what he wrote down. He may have just been doodling. I don't know. Oh, by the way, the little fact has nothing to do with the story. This is the only place in Scripture where Jesus is ever referred to as writing. Only place. Well, he stands up and he makes a statement. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, okay, kill her. In essence, he said that. The one who has no sin, go ahead, you be the first one. Now, by the way, according to Jewish law, the one who cast the first stone was supposed to be a witness to the event. So in this instance, how did someone witness the event? One writer said that means they were either the involved party or it was really a trap that they set up so they could see what was happening and bring this guilty party to Christ. Neither way did it look good. But he says, he who is out without sin among you, 
cast the first stone. And then he stoops down and starts writing again. Maybe some more sins. Maybe some more names. He might have just written a simple phrase. I know you. I know what's in your heart. I know what you got away with. You see, in social media days, it stays with you forever. But in those days, you think you got away with it because no one saw it. Uh, I saw it. I don't know what he wrote down, but he started writing down again. And my friends, following what happened is one of the most poignant scenes in all of history. This guilty soul is confronted by pure holiness. This guilty soul is confronted by pure love. Look what happened. He stoops down and starts writing again. And when they heard this, verse 7... They left one by one, starting with the old guys. Why? You say because they're wiser? They had more sin maybe. I don't know. But the old guys start just backing away. Again, why? The power of Jesus to speak to a heart. When he speaks, he cuts deep with me and you and He spoke deep to these people's hearts. The one, if you have no sin, go ahead and pick up the rock. Let it fly, boys. I can't. I can't. I can't. So they began to leave. One by one. Finally, there's nobody left. Some of the movie versions of uh, this story, some powerful versions, the woman is just on the ground sobbing she knows her life is over it's done he says woman where are your accusers well she looks up everybody gone those who had accused those who had drug her into the temple complex they're all gone and she's confused no doubt about it and woman where are they has no one uh, condemned you verse 10 no one lord Look who she called Jesus. No one, Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. You see, one of the most poignant scenes ever imagined. See, for Jesus to forgive this woman was no easy task because he knew in a few days he would die for the sin that she had committed. You see, forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. We sang just a moment ago, oh, the blood. It cost his blood, his sacrifice. By applying the law to the woman and not to themselves, these leaders were violating both the spirit and the letter of the law. But friends, aren't we often like this crowd? Those that live above us, we think, we love sometimes to see them fall. And with social media, we can just keep digging and digging and digging. It's easy to tune them out, turn them out. Right now, wouldn't we be honest? Sometimes we are that crowd. Sometimes we are like that crowd. We like to see other people fall and fail. Why is it? Why is it? it maybe it's because we're like they were. We like mediocrity 
And we like and love conformity. We love mediocrity and we love conformity. But did not Paul, that apostle, say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service, and be not, what? Conformed to this world. He calls out for us to live on a higher plane. And I beg of you to look at 2020 as an opportunity to live a different way, to love a different way, to be done with religious snobbery and prejudice of every kind and live on a higher plane and look toward a greater growth than you've ever experienced in your life. Columnist Herb Cain gave this funny little story and he said, every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up and realizes it better be faster than the slowest gazelle or it's going to go without food. And every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up and knows it better be able to run faster than the fastest lion or its life will be over. Either way, you better wake up running. Well, in the Christian life, we need to wake up running. Charles Spurgeon said this, If you're not seeking the Lord, the devil is seeking you. If you are not seeking the Lord, judgment is at your heels. The Christian life should be one where we wake up every day and say, God, I want to seek you. I want to run, run, run toward you. Lord, I want to be more like you. I want to live on that higher ground. And I love the old hymn. And here are the verses from it. Maybe you remember it. Maybe you're too young to remember it. But here it is. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Second verse. I want to scale the utmost height. And catch a gleam of glory bright. I like that. But still I'll pray till heaven I found. Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Number three. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. By faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I pray that we'll be done with mediocrity. That we'll not be like the crowd who are constantly looking down on those who we think may not live up to our standards, but in love reach out. And I pray we'll not be like the crowd who looked uh, down really on those who would not come down to their standards. But say, Lord Jesus, I want to live like you. I want to be like you. I want to keep walking on that upward trail. Lord, I want to find that higher ground. Let us be done with mediocrity. Don't you know that woman went home thinking, what just happened to me? I just knew I was going to die. I'm not a good person. But I found mercy today. I never thought it would happen. What happened? How about the men who had brought her? They went home that day thinking, what just happened? We had him, and now he's crushed my heart. And I realize I, I could have been right where that woman was. I deserve to be stoned. 
I'm not without sin. And that clarion call from the Lord Jesus, go and sin no more. He wasn't easy on sin. He paid for it. But praise God for the mercy and grace that we see in Jesus. Don't you want to be like him? I do. I do. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for your powerful word. We pray, Father, in 2020, we'll seek that higher ground. And we'll run, run, run to you. Father, we pray, God, that you would be the Lord of 2020. And just like this woman found a new chance, may we have a new chance. Just like these men found a conviction that I pray set them free, may we find a conviction that sets us free. Father God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today. May, as, we've already, as Kevin has already prayed, may we go from this place different than that which we came. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.